It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today, as protesters gather in the thousands in every major American city, demanding justice for George Floyd, an African-American man who was brutally and publicly slain in Minneapolis while in police custody, we must acknowledge the hard truth that our nation is in crisis. Very legitimate issues of police brutality and systemic racism are being confronted and, at times, usurped by the more general restlessness, rage, and anxiety of such uncertain times. Though it feels as though our democracy is under attack, we must appreciate the very American tradition of organizing in the name of justice. In today's episode of Escape Hate, I sit down and talk to two incredible and downright heroic individuals who've recently come to call this country home. Abdulaziz Al-Hamza fled his hometown of Raqqa, Syria, in 2014 at the age of 22, after multiple arrests and death threats, first for organizing nonviolent protests against the Syrian regime as a university student, and then for the award-winning work of the organization he founded, Raqqa is being slaughtered silently, which has been exposing the atrocities of ISIS as well as the Syrian government through the work of citizen journalists. Faisal Saeed Al-Mutar grew up in Baghdad, Iraq, to a secular family under Saddam Hussein. Al-Mutar began his activism as a teenager, founding the Global Secular Humanist Movement in 2010. As a result, he faced attempted kidnappings and death threats from Al-Qaeda and the Mahdi Army and moved to the United States as a refugee in 2013. By 2017, he founded Ideas Beyond Borders, a nonprofit that works to promote the free exchange of ideas and to defend human rights to counter extremist narratives and authoritarian institutions by translating academic articles and seminal works into Arabic. Join us today as we sit down to discuss the immense power of extraordinary, ordinary citizens to effect change in the face of tyranny and offer some much-needed insight, inspiration, and perspective. For Crawl Space Media and Light Upon Light, I'm Nama Cates. Welcome to Escape Hate. Okay, so we'll start on Escape Hate. Normally we talk about polarization, hate, tribalism. Usually it's in the lens of American context here in this country. So values that come up too are freedom of speech, freedom of ideas, freedom of expression, 
both of you have a very unique perspective on these values and also on oppression as refugees from Iraq and Syria, where there was oppression and persecution from multiple regimes at different times. So if you'd like to start by maybe giving a bit of a background on yourselves, what you do. I know you were both born in 91, right? Yes. Are we? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, now you know. So who'd like to start? Maybe we go alphabetically, Aziz. Okay, so my name is Aziz, like real name Abdul Aziz, but everyone calls me Aziz. I'm from Syria, from a small city called Raqqa, which was unknown city for a while until a group called ISIS came and turned it to its capital and everyone started talking about it. I bet so many Syrians didn't hear of my city and recently my city was like all over the news and all over the TV channels, like wherever I've been. I studied biochemistry back home in Syria and when the revolution started in 2011, I joined early in the beginning organizing protests and I got into the media work. I always wanted to be a journalist, so I started covering the news, covering the protests. And I found myself writing articles for international publications and doing media more than anything else, which is what I've been focusing on since then. And I ended up being like a journalist or what they call it, a journalist, uh, without studying journalism or media. That's more or less who I am. A short version. I'm sure there's more, Aziz. Yes. I know you, I know you well enough. Yeah, your story is incredible. I saw the documentary City of Ghosts. So your organization, your group was Raqqa's Being Slaughtered Silently. I co-founded Raqqa's Being Slaughtered Silently in April 2014. After ISIS took over my city in three months. So ISIS took control of my city January 2014. And three months later, my colleagues and I, we started Raqqa's Being Slaughtered Silently. But in 2011, you were already starting um, to do some local journalism at yes. your university. So what was going on then in 2011? So in 2011, the Syrian revolution started in March 2011. when, And it all started first in a Syrian city called Dara, where a bunch of kids like coming out of school, stacking the walls with like some sayings like down with the regime as the as everyone in Syria or in the Middle East was watching the Egyptian revolution. It was all over the news and all people, they were shouting like down with the regime, down with the regime. And those kids had no idea what that even means. So they were like a bunch of kids, uh, like 12, 13 years old. They tagged the walls. The secret service, they came, they arrested them, they were tortured, and like in a bad way. And when their parents went to ask for their kids, the secret service told their parents, you know, forget about your kids. Go try to make new kids, and if you're not able to have like a new kids, send your wives and we'll make you new kids. And that was like an mm-hmm. acceptable thing to say to anyone, and especially that area, which is like a tribal area. So people, they went out, they hit the street, they started protesting. Uh, and the government, instead of trying to find a solution, they started shooting the protesters. So protests started to happen all over Syria in solidarity with the Radha city where everything started. 
And the government thought that by shooting people, they would be able to stop them protesting. And they didn't know, like, but like day by day, them shooting people would get more people into the streets protesting. So at the time, like when all those events started, I joined the protest early in the beginning. And my role was more or less organizing the protest to say like where, when, because it was so complicated and so risky because people might, so many people, so, because like anyone might die and so many people have been killed and arrested, tortured, including me. I got arrested three times organizing protests. And then the government prevented all media organizations, outlets to enter the country and cover what's going on. And it was only the state media, like the state propaganda. And here where I noticed that we can do something as locals. So I started filming protests with my old Nokia phone and uploading stuff online on YouTube and social media. And my videos of the protests and what's going on were picked by the major TV channels all over the world, although I was using a nickname. It wasn't my real name, Mm -hmm. my identity, not to be arrested. So from there, I noticed that power of media and the power of the internet and how you can use your small device, your phone, to make a change in the world and to inform people about what's going on. So it started first against the government. At the time, we had no ISIS because I... So the the government, the the regime that you're talking about at the time that the protests were against was Bashar al-Assad, right? Yes, Bashar al-Assad, al-Assad government. Just still in control until now, until this second. So, yeah, it started against the government, Al-Assad's government, the Syrian government. And, yeah, my role was, like, mainly first, like, organizing protests. Then I got into the media part of it where I was, like, filming almost everything. And because of my activities, I got arrested three times by the Syrian government, by the Assad's government. And then in 2013, my city was the first city to run out of the government control. So we had the opposition taking over at the time. Like, so there was like a vacuum in power where so many other groups came and tried to fill that vacuum. Mm-hmm. At the time, like a couple of months later, like they, like it, I said, like early 2013, March 2013, the opposition took over. And like a couple of months later, groups like ISIS, other extremism groups came into the city trying to fill that vacuum in power. At the end of the year, the beginning of 2014, a battle started between ISIS and the opposition. And the second week of January, ISIS was able to take over the entire city of Raqqa, my city, and here where they started step by step forcing people to follow their rules, establishing new rules, change the identity of the city, trying to force people to do things that they don't want to do, starting all those crazy things from forcing people like to, like forcing women to dress like black in black and not show their bodies. No TV, no radios, like nothing allowed. They didn't allow like any source of media out of their own like media outlets. And then they started torturing, arresting people in a bad way, spreading fear among civilians as like a strong message. If you would do like anything would bother us, we would kill you or we would arrest you, we would torture you. And 
at the time we were like so confused about that group and like three months later we decided that we need to do the same thing that we've done with the government where we started Rakas being slaughtered silently to extend our coverage and our movement not to be against the Syrian regime only but to include ISIS and all extremism groups and later on we've noticed that so many governments countries started to get involved in the situation. So we've also decided to cover like all atrocities, like human rights violations committed by any party, whether it's like a government, militia, or like international community. Okay, I'll switch over to Faisal to your story. But quickly, I'm just in Raqqa, you know, when you grew up, were most of the people, would you say kind of moderate or secular? Or what was the culture like? I would say like, I'm not sure about the exact percentage mm-hmm. of Syria, but like in Syria in general, Syria is like a majority Muslim country. Like it's mm-hmm. for sure more than 80% yeah. of Syrians are Muslims, Sunnis. And I would say Raqqa, like we had like Christians and we had Muslims, but the majority, like 85%, even more than 85% are Muslim Sunnis. But people in Syria or Raqqa, we're like mainly born as Muslims. So Islam is something that we just got it by birth. Right. You know, like in Europe or here in the U.S., when I pass by church, like it's mainly empty. You know, we do have Mm. them like out in the street. Like it's the same thing with mosques back Mm. in Raqqa. So there is like a mosque like in almost like every neighborhood. But like if you would go like to the mosque like for each prayer, you would find like three or four people praying, you know? So yeah. the thing, it's like something there, we consider ourselves as Muslims. Sure. But I wouldn't say like, you know, so for us, there is like the main prayer, which is like on Friday, where most of the people would go to the mosque to pray. You know, I would compare it like to the Sunday here, like mm-hmm. when people go to the church. So it's like that one day. Yeah. So people, they fast Ramadan. Like I would say like good percentage of people, they fast Ramadan. And beside that, like, you know, it wasn't like a big thing. So even like when you talk about scarf and women, it's up like to the women, like if they want to put a scarf or not. That's not only in Raqqa, that's like in Syria overall. So nobody would force you. So if you would go to the beach, you know, in Syria, you would find women in bikinis and like women are covered. And nobody would be bothered. And it wasn't like a thing that we would think of, you know. Alcohol was legal in Syria. You know, so we had like alcohol stores, it's legal. Yeah, you know, you can go and buy it, it's not a crime. There are like some weed or drugs were like illegal, but there were like so many farms of weed. Like, as I do live here in New York City, you know, it's illegal, but it's almost like everyone smoke weed here. Yeah. Yeah, in Syria, you would find like people smoking weed and it wasn't like a big deal. It wasn't like a huge crime unless you are like a dealer, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, overall people they were like more into the culture more than the religion. All right. So now um Faisal if you'd like to go uh, ahead. I don't think I can compete with that when it, <laughs> the story ended up with talking about weed. I think uh, I think, I think <laughs> well, I'm definitely on on uh, uh, on a different track here, but there, there are some similarities of course and and, and I mean Iraq and Syria are neighboring countries. So there is mm-hmm. a lot of the things that happened in our country affected them and and vice versa. Um, I've actually been to Syria quite a lot myself. Um, so, I mean, I, I would generally say is like my, my life is divided to multiple stages and, and some of them are very uniquely different than each other. The first phase is, is the phase where I grew up under Saddam Hussein. 
So I was born in 1991, so that's right after the first Gulf War. Yep. And in the, in the time between the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War was when the regime of Saddam Hussein was in power. Um, it was also the time in which the, the same party, which is the Ba'ath Party of, of Iraq, which is kind of a bit different than, than Syria and, and some of its stuff, but, but it's kind of similar ideology in some occasions, but declared that Iraq is a, is a part of a faith campaign. So Iraq was actually kind of becoming more and more uh, Islamist or something because Islamist mm-hmm. or, or, or um, and then so then the U.S. came um, and that's obviously is a series of episodes by themselves. But the I mean I I do remember like this, kind of I, the day that happened is that when I was watching the local news uh, it was saying that the United States is defeated that they're still in the south. But then I see U.S. Abraham stand coming in front of my house in West Baghdad on the highway. Um, and my elementary school uh, became an Iraqi military base. So, and that was like five blocks away from my house. So there was the U.S. tanks in front of my house on the highway in my elementary school where the Iraqi <laughs> military was. And then it's like everyone was firing rockets at each other. Oh. Um, so I do remember that these four days uh, pretty well. And at the same time, when we were watching the local news, they were saying that America is defeated and and all of that stuff. Um, so I, I am from Baghdad. Um, mm. Even though I wasn't born there, I was born in south of Baghdad in, in Babylon, the biblical oh. uh, city of Babylon. Okay. And uh, so that's when that's kind of the second phase of my life is kind of the, the post-U.S. Um, invasion. And then um, what happened is that my neighborhood uh, is, is used to be where many of Saddam Hussein's generals used to live. Um, and when the war happened, and so when the war ended, many of these people left. So they left their houses, and their houses became empty. Who replaced them? Al Qaeda and other militias. So from a normal residential neighborhood, uh, it became a war zone. And first, it's a war zone be- between between Al Qaeda itself and the militias and the U.S. military, and then it became a war zone between Al Qaeda and other Shia militias coming from east side of Baghdad or the, or the neighborhoods uh, nearby. So uh, a usual day is that we go to high school, there are dead bodies in the streets, uh, we walk by them. My high school was, the, the, the police station near my high school was blown up multiple times. And uh, so that was kind of a, the life for, uh, let's say, like 2004, 2005. So there was like a calm period of time after 2003, and then if like few mo- few months later is, is where shit hit the fan immediately. Mm-hmm. And uh, the area that I was in is, is is very close to, for those who are familiar with Iraq, is Fallujah and Ramadi and many of these areas. So my my our area in Baghdad is actually closer to that area than uh, even though it's still in Baghdad. So um, my crazy me at the time, 2006, 2007, when all of that was happening, I started becoming, as Aziz actually mentioned pretty well, that kind of blogging and social media. And, and, and at the time, it was not as developed as now with Facebook and stuff. I, but but there was kind of a blogger scene uh, mm-hmm. that existed in in, in Baghdad. Um, some some is actually interesting. Some of there's like a black metal uh, blogging, and yeah. uh, there's kind of a metal scene that which is actually covered by National Geographic called yeah. Heavy Metal in Baghdad. Uh, so there, was, cool. there were like multiple scenes. Like some was like some was uh, like musical, some was uh, artistic, and, and mine was like more the political. Um, and mainly is, is, I mean, talk about polarization. I mean, I, I say is like my activism was, or the beginning of my activism was mainly anti-polarization. Um, mm. I did grow up in a 
by most accounts, kind of because of the moderate family. Uh, I never had, or even we never really discussed these things about Sunnis and Shias and who is mm-hmm. what, how do you pray and whether you hold your hands when you pray and when you, like it was not really never something that was discussed in the house, nor it was something that was discussed in my neighborhood. Like we, we really, all of us really looked at each other as just neighbors and friends. And in the moment that kind of, um, um, identity just started getting shattered, then everybody clinged to their, oh, I'm from this tribe and oh, I'm from this, uh, sect and I'm from this religion. And obviously religious minorities were kind of the first targets of my neighborhood, uh, first Christians and everybody started leaving. And so that was, so as was all that happening and I was all blogging, I started getting into and death threats and started becoming, getting on the scene. Um, and it wasn't really hard to get a death threat. I mean, I'm not, not trying to claim that it was like my heroism really. It's like if you had some, some blog say that people should get along, you would get a death threat. So uh-huh. I'm not, I'm not here trying to claim that it was, I was so important to the way I got a death threat. In fact, it's like many, pretty much many of my friends get a threat, death threat. Some of them were targeted, some of them were killed. So these death threats are, because, you know, even I can say I get death threats for doing the incel podcast, but they're not as serious. It's just people talking online, but this is legitimate. Yeah, I mean, in my case, it's like, so they came to my high school, they put a letter on the bullets, and then there was like, there were others like attempted kidnappings and all of that. So when, when all of that was happening, so I was uh, finishing my high school and also blogging. Then by end of 2009, after finishing my high school, I actually escaped Iraq. Um, so I left Iraq in the end of 2009, and then I went to Lebanon, and my goal was to go to, to UK where my sister was living, and then I got my visa rejected. And then at the same time, Lebanon was also having its own issues as always, which was mm-hmm. also some of them sectarian and stuff. And then I got accepted in, in a university in Malaysia. So I flew from Lebanon to Malaysia, Southeast Asia, uh, mainly for the fact that it's far, so it's not the, <laughs> many of the issues of the Middle East doesn't affect it. It was also safer for a place that in order for me to apply for refugee status, I will be able to, to, to kind of have the weight while Lebanon and other places I was not able to. So I went to Malaysia. I was studying there, but at the same time I applied for refugee status. And then I started, I went from like Iraqi blogging to more international blogging. So mm-hmm. I started writing in English more. And, and then I created the Facebook page that eventually now have 300,000 followers. Um, and. Within, yeah, so, so all that happening, and then I got accepted to come to America in 2013 as a refugee. Um, as so it's been like seven years from now. And then it, it's kind of like a, a combination of survival guilt into, uh, uh, there is something to do. Um, so first I, I started working. I mean, my, I worked a lot of digital marketing and stuff. So I get a normal job when I arrived to America. But then after a bit, I, I realized that there is something that can be done. Um, and I am very much qualified to do it and, and, and all of that. Then I started kind of getting engaged in the nonprofit scene, um, and started to work with this organization called movements.org. And then when, I, when that was happening, I became kind of a figure getting invited to speeches and all of that. And then I was able to kind of cultivate funders to start my organization, Ideas Beyond Borders. Um, which is really kind of the journey of my life, knowing that the ecosystem in which many people uh, my age were growing up in, and I hope we can touch on like from conspiracy theories to, to, to bad science to, to <laughs> all of that and realizing that speaking English is a privilege. And then like seeing that most of Arabic internet is not equipped with any material about critical thinking or, or media literacy or, 
science and all that. Not not to say that this exists in all other languages, but yeah. I think but I think Arabic based Arab based upon the conflicts that exist there in which uh, critical thinking and, and anti polarization ideology really comes in handy when mm-hmm. someone is trying to recruit you to 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 kill the other guy. So so yeah. um so I started this organization mainly as of three years ago. I mean now we just had our anniversary, a three year anniversary, which is to provide that alternative to extremism, to teach critical thinking, to teach and that's kind of inspiration of my story beginning from Iraq. And I, I was one of the I would say like my parents taught me English, both of my dad studied in the UK. Um and so I, I kind of fit the stereotype of an Asian family of doctors and engineers. So my dad is a doctor, my mom is a lawyer. And two of my brothers are engineers, and two of them are doctors. So, okay. uh, so, and I'm the loser in the family. <laughs> right, um, the and, loser. Uh, so, so that's kind of, so I, we were able to, to study English from a young age. So, one of the things that I think is very interesting about Iraq that could be a bit, a bit different, but also similar to Syria in some occasions, is that so Iraq was uh, compared to 1984 during uh, during Saddam Hussein. So we went from one state media to then eventually turned into a thousand political parties and a thousand media stations. So we went that 2003 war, we moved from 1984 to Brave New World in three months. <laughs> and and we, so we moved from just like one state, one leader into multiple political parties. Uh, this party represents the Kurds, the represents the Shias, represents, represents this part of the Shias, and this part represents this section mm. of the Sunnis. And it, we turned into uh, into absolute chaos. And when that chaos came again, it started, the vacuum started being filled with extremists, started being filled with charlatans. And I've, I've seen them like in, in, in my daily life. I've seen like literally Al Qaeda recruiters walking around. Uh, yeah. and, 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 and even times like that were difficult in some occasions. They were giving like blankets to people. Cause that's also sometimes forgotten when you look at these groups as just a bunch of militias right. holding guns. But there was this element of, of, of governance, mm-hmm. of social cohesion, of like interaction with the local community that they have done in some occasions much better job than the Iraqi government itself. Uh, right. So that way there were times in which many people trusted these groups far much more than trusted the government, which mm-hmm. was amazingly corrupt and still is in many occasions. So it's, it's really like a, I mean, to summarize my life, it's, it's, it's really been really a constant conflict of all of these militias and, 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 and governments. Uh, and then after I, I moved here, like it's been, it's been, uh, seven years. And then I think I was in a patio of a friend of mine in New York and I was like, wow, this peaceful life is cool. It's just like came up to me as a, as a realization. I like kind of like Moses. Uh, it's like, I was like sitting in a patio, uh, smoking a cigarette and I was like, wow, it's been like four years, five years. I don't really have to be worried getting killed or mm. have to look around when I'm walking and have to uh, always, I mean, in my occasions, because of the sectarian war, for example, I had two IDs. I had one ID says I'm a Sunni, one ID says I'm a Shia. And oh. you know this in Iraq by the last name. So, so mm-hmm. if someone is, is like from tribe X, like Musawi, it's a Shia, it's Tikrit, it's Sunni. And then, mm-hmm. and then when you go through the militias, you have to really be smart enough to know how to show the right idea at the right time. And then if they ask you to pray, for example, you have to know a prayer in both of these sects. So, so, uh, when, and do when you? I, came, I, I do. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I had to learn it, mm-hmm. whether I like it or not. So, um, and then so, so in a way, it's like that kind of, uh, a peaceful life, at least for a bit, until this global pandemic hit. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> is, uh, is, is that I was like, oh, like it's, uh, it's been a bit of difference in kind of, how did I live my life from a kid lo- looking around his shoulder 24-7 into kind of now 
uh, hopefully a bit more peaceful. Um, and my goal is that I wish, I, I would love that my, my country of birth, Iraq, would have that luxury of, of peace and coexistence of people of all different religions. And, and whether it's New York, whether it's when I'm now in Virginia, the people walk around, they don't care if this guy's a Christian or this guy mm-hmm. is a Hindu and this guy is a Muslim and which sect it is. Uh, and everyone is minding their own business. And, and I hope that like Iraq one day will, will get that, whether Iraq can continue to be what it is or whether it's going to become a 30 states in, in the future. Yeah. And just the goal is that I, I wish like, for example, like, like, I mean, uh, like Syria and Iraq, people would be able to travel easily, would be able mm-hmm. to. Uh, and in peace and not worry about the flight being blown up or the, or the bus coming from Baghdad to Damascus would be stopped by terrorists and getting all the people killed. Uh, uh, yes. so, so, so this is, this is, sounds like basic stuff, but I think it's, it's definitely, uh, something that I would love to see happening. And you're working towards it. Um, the goal. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two questions. One, when you were receiving these death threats when you were in high school and doing journalism, who was that from? So it's funny. I mean, I, I made a joke before I leave Iraq in which I was a uniter because I was, I was able to get death threats from both Sunni militias. No, okay. Okay. Um, so I was able to, to unite the whole country. Uh, I, think, I think the Kurds are the only group that I didn't piss off because I didn't really have anything to do with them as, as, as a somebody from Baghdad. But it was so my, my neighborhood in the area I was living in, in Baghdad, there were two main militias. One is called Jesh and Mahdi. And Jesh al-Mahdi is led by a guy called Muqtad al-Sadr, who is a mm-hmm. kind of a known cleric. Um, mm-hmm. Sure, Aziz knows him as well, is that kind of a known cleric in the, in the Iraqi scene, but also in kind of the Middle East scene. So he's, the moment when al-Qaeda was kind of pushing back, uh, there was a kind of a very major event happened called the Al-Askari Mosque, Imam Askari, which is an area in Samarra in which al-Qaeda blew up. And the moment, and that's considered a very holy imam to the Shia text. So when that was happening, the Shias were getting more and more motorized and, and, and so, when I was, any, any messaging that is, was about unity, about like, that there is no difference between Sunnis and Shias became a target of bo- both of these militias. Mm-hmm. They wanted pretty much that. And every time that I was explaining that, don't fall for this trap because the moment you fall for it, it's actually, you are the least beneficiary of that conflict. I mean, the militias can yeah. get millions of funding and they can, and they can be famous, but really the average Joe, whatever they're Sunnis or Shias or whatever, they're the losers at the end. Yeah. They're the ones who are going to lose their brothers and lose their. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty much these these were the kind of the two major ones. And then there were these kind of smaller ones called Qatar, Omar, and stuff, which were. But really, like all of them, I would say within the the, the umbrella of of Al Qaeda um, and kind of there is kind of a those who like to throw gays from the top floor and those who like to throw gays from the fourteenth floor. So that's kind of the. The difference for between <laughs> of these militias okay. is that, I mean, then, then ISIS came in, which is like gay should be thrown from the 20th floor. They, <laughs> they kind of, uh, it's an upgraded version, but, but that's kind of mainly the differences between many of these militias. They, they came in with different names and different, uh, but kind of in terms of local governance and the, the way that they treat, uh, people there, if they speak, it's kind of very much similar. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, they were the kind of the main, the main groups that the, Al Qaeda was kind of the closest because that was the the one that took over my neighborhood and the neighborhood my high school was 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 uh, so they were the ones that that kind of were dominant in my life. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, uh, when uh, when I go outside this kind of small section of of of, of my neighborhood and 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 uh, West Baghdad is the where I start interacting with the other 
militias in in, in other areas. So I had I had less interaction with the Mahdi, but but I had more interaction with Al Qaeda. And uh, so you were talking about how these groups also act as governments too. They have some form of governance, sometimes better than the previous. Um, so Aziz, was there a period of time when when ISIS initially took over Raqqa that it seemed like you know that people were trusting them? Because they were, were apparently providing some stability or something, you know. So, uh, yeah, something so many people, they don't know about ISIS and extremism groups. They think that they are stupid and they are like a bunch of a crazy psychopath people just running around trying to kill people. It's true in part of it, you know, but the thing is, those like crazy psycho people, whatever people call them, so they were able to establish a state or like which mm -hmm. where they had like ministries, they had like a governor, they had like a structure of like an entire state. And they were able to run a big state or like whatever areas that they were controlling, which was bigger than the UK as a space, you know, mm -hmm. so... To get to that point, you're not talking about a bunch of psychopaths only. So there yes. was like a mastermind behind ISIS that got them to that point, how to be able to control all those areas, how they were able like to provide services, although it wasn't like the best services, but like, you know, people could survive like at the end of it, you know, if they want to have like a basic normal life. So for them to they, for them, they used all those services and the way how they established their own state to get people to believe in them and even if not believing in them to join them. So mm -hmm. what ISIS did first, they cut off everything with the government or out of their areas of control. So if, you, if you're like a teacher, as an example, like in ISIS territories, you can't teach anymore. You know, you're getting no salary. If you're... You know, if you're a doctor, you're not getting like a, like a salary from the government. If you're like engineer or whatever, you know, you can't get a salary unless you have your own business, which doesn't go ad against ISIS like ideology. You know, if you're like, if you have a restaurant, that's fine. You know, so when ISIS came first, they cut off all this relation with the government, other areas where people would have an income and they force all those teachers, doctors or whatever. If you want to work, you can't just go and work. You have to join us first in order to work. If you want to teach, you can teach the same curriculum that the government had for ages. You know, you need to come and teach our own curriculum, which is a new ideology. It's all about ISIS mm -hmm. ideology, how to brainwash people. You know, if you are a doctor, you need like, you, you need to take care of our like fight. If, like they would say, like, you, you ha like the doctors have to take care of ISIS fighters, not only civilians, you know, so they would force them or they would like order them what to do. Mm -hmm. And for them, like they didn't force people to do that, but they put them in a situation where they were forced. Like, you know, you would either like come join us and like follow our orders. Otherwise you can't work. And if mm -hmm. people can't work, in really tough situation, you know, and conditions. So they wouldn't have any source of income. So, so many people, they were forced to join ISIS in order to survive. So that was like one thing that ISIS done. So in order to get people to join them. And the second thing, like when we talk about media, so they did like 
prevented all media outlets uh, like TV channels, whatever, to come and enter their territories. And besides that, they banned TV, like satellites. You can't have a satellite. You can't have a TV. You can't have a radio. You can't have like an internet. They like close all like internet cafes, and they have like three, four, five open where they were able like to mentor everything, you know, and see like what those people do. So you can't like you know see like a, like a certain website or whatever. And yeah. it was like also a way trying like to prevent us from reporting, but we had like our own private ways to get internet and to exchange information. So how, I mean, if you don't mind talking a little bit more about that, how, how did you do that with, you know, access to the internet cut off and the, everything being banned and monitored? I mean, so you don't want to get into was, specifics, but yeah, it wasn't easy. Like first of all, like the the thing is, the it like the the, the thing is, uh, first like thanks thanks for technology. Like we wouldn't be able to do any of this if it wasn't like for technology. And something first I talked about, you know, social media, like and like the people, like the use of social media in the Arab world. Uh, has changed like it wasn't the same like you know 10 years ago so the thing in 2011 like facebook twitter mm -hmm. uh, most of the social media platforms were banned in syria so you couldn't like by the government so before the revolution so i remember i have like my facebook account since 2009 and i had to go through proxy VPN in order to create an account because mm -hmm. I had friends like and relatives, you know, in Europe, in the COVID states, and they were all on Facebook and they were like telling me about it. So that's how I got into it. But the majority of people, they couldn't because they, it was like banded there and it was like you couldn't like have an account. And like luckily, like before the revolution in a couple of months, is like the government was like trying to show that they are like, um, like a liberal country, like a democratic country. So they unbanded those like social media platforms or website after like an international pressure, like on several countries. So, and the thing people, they had no idea how to use social media. And I would say like the use of social media, it's different. So the thing is like, I have like almost like 5,000 friends on Facebook. I think that's all the same thing. I think that's the max, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and I don't know, like I have like maybe like seven, 8,000 followers. And like when I meet like friends here, like people that I know on like a friendship level and they don't know a lot about my world and they try to add me on Facebook, they say, oh, we can't add you. Like, why do, do you know like all those 5,000? I was <laughs> like, eh, no. So... <laughs> The thing is, like, that we use the social media as a way of fight, of mm -hmm. fighting, you know, like, to, you know, to report the news. Like, right now in my Facebook, I have, like, journalists, you know, professors from all over the world. Like, you know, some professionals that we had never met, but we've been, like, talking about, like, you know, different things. So the way how I use, like, social media, maybe Facebook, like, we don't use it as you know, a social platform to exchange, you know, like jokes or whatever with friends. Like we do like post jokes, of course, you know, but the thing is we don't use it only like, you know, for fun or like to connect with the friends. We use it, you know, to push for an idea. 
you know, as Faisal mentioned, like he has like hundreds of thousands of followers on Facebook, which is the same thing. Like we have almost like 700,000 followers on our Facebook page, you know, of rockets being sought out silently. So mm -hmm. it was a way or a platform where people could be journalists, could be like media, re media reporter, yeah. media reporters. They can like share news, fake videos, photos, and it could go, it get, it could get like globally and thousands of millions of hundreds of whatever people could watch it so that was like how we started to use social media not as a platform you know to say hey what's up and right. change memes more than <laughs> like you know pushing for like serious stuff mm. so that was like a huge shift for us like in the middle east like having like access to social media so and then like for ISIS they knew that the powerful of media and the powerful of social media so they tried to block you know and ban all any person you know to boss anything for us like again thanks to our technology we found out about like internet devices it which is a jacket like it's literally a jacket that you can wear it or have it next to you it wouldn't give you like a fast internet you know but it's like an it's like a good like speed of internet where you can get stuff out sometimes like it would take a while to upload a photo or a video but it's like good if you would use it for like text messaging you know i would say as you would have like 2g or 3g max you know as like an internet speed so that was like one of the tools that i can talk about we have like other tools like you know to get information out or to have access to the internet so so for isis like what they like the main reason for them like to have like not to have like any source of information or media out of their own propaganda offices, media offices. It's just to convince people to believe in them. So mm. I would put it this way, like imagine yourself like for four or five days, waking up, like having one TV session, you know, and that's like the only station where you can get all your information. There is no any other source of information besides that TV channel. So you might not believe in it for the first month, the second month, the first year, the second year, the third year. Although if you program your mind and your brain, that is like, you know, propaganda. But that's the only way to get information, you know. And if you would keep like watching or listening to this TV channel, at some point you would believe in parts of it, you mm -hmm. know. And the other tool that ISIS use, as I said, like, you know, using like the economic or the financial situation of people, you know, no jobs, nothing they could do. So in order for those people like to get jobs, they had like to join ISIS. At the same time, ISIS offers so many benefits. If you want to join as a fighter, you know, so they would say like, you know, if you want to join us as a fighter, we would give you like, a free apartment, a free house, we'd give you cars, we'd give you salaries in dollars, like money that people wouldn't get, like if they would work as doctors or whatever, you know. If you are not married, we would like get you to marry four women. If you want to have like more than four women, we can provide you with the slaves. Uh, if you have like a sexual problem, like we'd fix it to you. So, you know, there were like so many people, they had like a problem had like problems you know sexual problems that they people didn't find them like attractive or they had like no way with, to talk with girls or whatever no text. so they found isis as a tool like you know to mm -hmm. get laid i would say or mm -hmm. like you know yeah. other, 
Yeah, like I heard like so many stories, like so many other people they they were like bullied like in like primary school or whatever and they had like, you know, a weak personality and they found ISIS a way to get their revenge back. So where they would go, mm-hmm. you know, like torture, arrest, like, you know, just like get all those like bullying that they've had for ages, you know, by ISIS. So many others who were like attracted, you know, to like video games or they were like into video games. So ISIS produced so many videos where they said, you know, there was like this, like a video game is called GTA. It's like a big mm-hmm. Grand game. Theft Auto. Yeah. Yeah. So where I they, saw they made those ISIS videos that looked just like it where they were. Yeah. So they produced like an exact same video. Yeah. Like, right. Like to replicate like a video of GTA and telling people, you know, come get a gun. You can get into a car, drive the car, you know, shoot other like bad people get their car, get their gun. As you're playing, like, a video game, they have, like, replicate, like, an like, entire part of the video from the game. So, so many mm-hmm. people from, like, all over the world, they went and joined. I've interviewed and met people from, like, Europe uh, who were, like, who, like, like, I met, I didn't meet them. I met their families, you know, and their relatives. Those foreigners, fighters who went and joined ISIS trying to understand why they went and joined. So many of them, they were, like, homeless. They faced, like, racism in their community. Wherever they were, they came, they came like, to Europe as, like, immigrant. They were, they faced, like, big pushback from the community. They were, like, arrested because of their race, because of their color, because of their religion. And ISIS, they found ISIS, like, a, a way, you know, to have, like, a really pretty life. You know, if you are a homeless, having like no life and someone would come and offer you like a house, cars, like women, like so many people found, found ISIS like as like a solution to survive or to have a life. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. And on the other hand, like if you would like watch and if anyone would follow like all extremism group, starting from Taliban, even before Taliban getting into Al Qaeda, getting into ISIS, they didn't fuck. Foc- they didn't really focus on media as much as ISIS. So if you would watch like Al-Qaeda or Taliban videos, like their video releases, it was like filmed like in like a bad... Yeah, like a beta. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like bad quality, even like the editing, the montage Mm -hmm. and everything. It's like so, so bad, like bad quality. When is it up to ISIS? ISIS, ISIS have produced videos so many professional like media people they said they were able to compete with hollywood mm-hmm. you know like that like the quality the techniques like all the effects and slick everything. yeah and they and that was like because they they dedicated like a big number of money for all media offices and they got people to believe in media and say like there was like a saying like that you are like a jihadist you a media guy so that's like an ISIS saying. So, and they put it, if you are working on media for ISIS media, you are like the same level of fighters, you know, mm-hmm. who go out and fight. So they put it that way. So be like, because so many people would say, you know, I want to like being a fighter is like the best level. Like for ISIS, when they came, they said, no, it's equal. Like if you want to be like an ISIS media guy, the same as being a fighter. So that attracted so many, you know, people with like media skills to go to the media field and produce all those videos that was able like you know to brainwash 
thousands or like millions of people from like all over the world. And the thing with ICE is, you know, they focus like on uh, like the governors, so they had like offices like for water, like they were like getting taxes from people, like electricity services, although they were like bombed. So they have like a mastermind behind like them. And the thing for them, they w- they targeted and controlled areas in Syria and Iraq where those areas are rich with oil, gas, agriculture, you know, like uh, historical like scenes or sites. Mm-hmm. You know? And they started like, and they had a black market with Turkey, like in like the borders of Turkey. So they were able to sell things. They were like trading things with the Syrian regime and, you know, like other militias and other groups. So they had access to finance, to money. So they were like self-funded more than the money they were getting from like some like funders or mm-hmm. like who did believe in them, like all over the world. But they focused more and like self-source funding, you know, focusing on having oil and gas that so many people would get it and try like to get it for like a cheaper price. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there's a few things that came up there that I want to talk about. One of which is what you were saying about like the pull to extremism, the way that uh, the messaging from ISIS, you know, promises people who are, uh, disenfranchised, dispossessed, displaced, or just even don't fit in, or, you know, dealing with some kind of uh, being an outcast promises them belonging and um, stability and comforts and meaning and glory and all these things. Um, and Faisal, you brought up uncertainty earlier when we were just talking about, you know, this COVID stuff and the effect that uncertainty has on everyone. So I think something that can be observed in recent years is a worldwide trend toward more authoritarian governments. This happens here and there in Europe. You can look at India, Philippines, uh, Israel, now Hungary, even the United States. It kind of fits, and maybe that's because we are living in a time of uncertainty. So during a time of uncertainty, I think there is a desire in people to have the simple answers of kind of the strongman authoritarian. Now, um, Faisal, what you do with Ideas Beyond Borders is provide alternative messaging, which can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, of course. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so I mean, give you some, um, stats is that I mean, some of them are obviously all that need to be updated, but the UN development report about the Arab world said, uh, I think a decade ago, said that there are more books translated to Spanish in one year than Arabic in 1,000. Um, and there are also new studies on, on kind of how much internet is actually available in Arabic, kind of like in major websites like Wikipedia and others. Uh, they, they, some, now they're down to all is 0.6% uh, of, uh, of Wikipedia, or not Wikipedia, but internet indexing in Arabic. The CEO of Wikipedia, Jim Wells, wrote an article, I had an interview with, with Charles Klaus of the newspaper saying that like Arabic Wikipedia is the most under-resourced uh, website by by capita because there's a lot of tens of millions of Arabic speakers. So this is where we actually put most of our efforts. Most of our largest team, which is made of 120 translators uh, across the region, are focused on making the articles about plural democratical thinking, science on the Arabic Wikipedia. 
So in that way, especially now, as is relevant is on, on COVID, is that we started this kind of task force of students of from medical background or science background to look at all of the articles about COVID and make sure that they're well scientifically referenced, that they have all of the data as they match with the good German Wikipedia or the English Wikipedia. Um, so this is where I, I, I mean, I, I think is to kind of, uh, with uncertainty is that one of the main things that are also mentioning is that extremism and all of these stuff are a spectrum. And, and there are people who, who are more likelihood to be kind of pulled. If you look at extremism from zero to 10, um, mm. 10 being ISIS and zero being so far from ISIS. Um, and the, the kind of when there is a lot of ecosystem of misinformation and, 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 mm. and conspiracies, then people will want to get the kind of the extremist answer and, and, and some extent kind of the stable answer. And that's what some extent conspiracy theory is able to provide as well. Is that, oh, here's a simple yeah. answer of how the world works. There are some mm. Jews who sit in Fifth Avenue mm. who, who are, there are 15 of them and they control, right. uh, they control 7 billion people. And that's all the compared to like looking at the world as amazingly complicated mm. with, with a lot of different interests with, even within the U.S. government, there are people who hate each other, or even within yeah. the government, there are people who, uh, and even like these countries that we think of uh, could be allies, could be allies in one thing, but not allies on the other. So generally, the, the extremists um, um, and authoritarians, I think sometimes both can be put in the same category on this one, is that they try to provide simple answers. I mean, ISIS is definitely, uh, and, and I think what's also in- interesting about ISIS is that I say that I think they have the best solution in a way by offering what I call a win-win-win situation. Because in their situation, if you get killed in the name of ISIS, you go to heaven. Mm-hmm. If you don't get killed in the name of ISIS, you get to heaven. If you get killed, you get to heaven. So in a way, you always win. There is no, yeah. if you actually believe in that, if you take that seriously, there is no such thing as a lose, is that you can always win. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think what kind of made ISIS kind of more powerful. Also, the fact that Compared to Al Qaeda that I grew up in, they were able to prove themselves and, and ISIS was able to create a state. And by them able to create a state, that was a pull for people to be like, Oh, why not do the same? Or, or, uh, and the same happened with the Ayatollah Khomeini with Iran is that they, mm. they were able to had the Islamic revolution took over. And then people were like, Oh, look, this actually can actually succeed. So why not we, so they became a motivator, but, but also it's, it's worth mentioning that it's still when we're talking about numbers, because I, even like when we're talking about global pandemic can be related in this regard. Is that the people who actually joined ISIS from Mosul, from Iraq, from Syria, from all of that are still a very small amount in percentage wise. Like, yeah. like most people did not join ISIS. Like there's no, like ISIS membership is not 50, 50 million people. I mean, it's yeah. still the, the people who are willing to take that step to be like, you know what? Raping a Yazidi woman is fine and beheading uh, gays is okay. And, 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 and and, and what I, I mean, we actually operate as an organization, have a lot of partnerships in Iraq in areas that were controlled by ISIS. And, the, and, and that's Mosul and, and University of Mosul and universities across the country. And I, and I did add the, I would say the privilege of, of talking to some of the students who, who are, well, they were 18 or 19, but they were kind of very big like adults and, and mm-hmm. were amazingly mature. And one of the things is that, is that one of the students that I talked to, he says that like, oh, well, he grew up kind of believing that caliphate was a good idea and stuff like that. But then he's like, wakes up every day, sees a beheading, sees, uh, de- blood in the streets, sees all of that. And then like, you know what? I don't want a caliphate. That's, that sounds like, that sounds like a bad idea. Like, like people had, 
many people had the theory of it, like they, it was an abstract mm-hmm. uh, idea that, oh, this is the best thing to do, etc. But then when they were actually seeing it in real life, they were like, oh, shit, this is not what I signed up for. Yeah. And that's what I think explains also why IBB has been successful a lot in, in our viewership. I mean, our, our content of viewership is by the tens of millions. Mm-hmm. And I think some of it also has to do with the fact is that many people, they don't know, many people don't know what is right. But they know what's wrong. They mm. have seen, they have seen the authoritarians from the kind of the Ba'ath party or the socialist side and the Arab national side. And they have seen the authoritarianism of ISIS and, and all of others. And they're looking for an alternative. And, uh, we are trying to be that alternative in the words like, even now we're actually doing a lot of humanitarian work as well, especially because of COVID and giving people food and math. One of the things that I think what makes us very unique is that we don't ask you something in return. Mm-hmm. And, and people are appreciating that because they are used to this humanitarianism in which if they give you a, a, a piece of meal, well, here's this book you should read. It's the, it's the right one. Yeah. Or here's this militia that you should. And I think is that people are now having a resentment towards that. And for us to, yes. when, when they see an organization like ours or like, you know what? Uh, here's some food. You're poor. Take it. You don't have to sign anything. You don't have to read any mm-hmm. book. You don't have to join anything. Just take care of your health and be safe. Yeah. And, and and I think is that that's where more, I would say, many youth are going to, is that they have a rejection of, of, of these and, and they definitely need to be empowered. And that's why I think critical thinking is, is, is a vaccine. I mean, talking about vaccines yes. is a vaccine against manipulation. If you realize yeah. that this extremist group is trying to recruit you, but really they are the one who get a benefit. The leaders are going to be the ones. Are not going to be the ones who are, I mean, Osama bin Laden was hiding in a, in a house in Pakistan. He wasn't the yeah. one who was in a, in a front lines killing people. He was when he was a little soldier with the, with the, against the Soviet Union. But yeah. when he became a leader, he's not the one being hurt. It's your, it's your brother and your, and your cousin and, and, and you, in our case, you're being used. The more people are, the more they get equipped by critical thinking and they start looking for evidence and start seeing the, the, that many of these ideologies, whether it's extremists or authoritarian, it started being deconstructed. It started making no absolute no sense. And it's definitely a lot of effort. It's, 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 we're talking about generations of generations that lived under oppression, lived under uh, conspiracy theories. I mean, I, I wrote this uh, article that, that I was kind of doing calculations in, in time. And I was like, if, if somebody is 50 today in Iraq, he at least grew up five wars or six wars in a row. Mm. So if you were born, like, let's say you're, I think if you're born like 70 or 60s, by the time you're 18, the Iraq-Iran war happened. By the you're 20, the Iraq-Iran war happened, which is eight years. That is one of the most devastating war actually Iraq's ever had, which is eight-year yeah. war of, of, of kind of a stalemate. So like they kill 500, we kill 500, next week the same, and then the economy was devastated. Then a few years later, Saddam goes in and invades Kuwait. So then there's that other war. And then after that war, there's the sanctions after that war. Mm-hmm. And you are all living with like two state television. One is run by Saddam himself and one is run by Uday Saddam Hussein, which is like Saddam Hussein on steroids. So if you think Saddam yeah. was a bad guy, try his son. So, mm-hmm. so then, so then this is like the other thing is then the third, then there's a second Gulf War happens. <laughs> and then after the first, that war, then there is kind of a, a moment of peace for a month or two. And then there is the other civil war and then ISIS came in. So imagine this is like the target audience that we are dealing with. It's, it's a very traumatized target audience. Yes. It's, it's, 
is the target audience that really doesn't have a trust in anything mm-hmm. because we've tried this, we've tried that, we've tried this. What makes you the good guy? Because right. everyone, I mean, all I guess we're the good guy. What makes you? Um, but I, th- I think there is still that, I would say, to some extent, human urge that they want to live in peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most people, whatever you come from, maybe that's a general statement, but but if you take this kind of extreme ideologies aside and you kind of look at humanity at large, even when they get defensive or when they get tribal, many of these are just defense mechanisms yeah. for them to be able to feed their family and be able... I, I don't think, and that could be a, a statement that I would regret, is that I don't think any mother, or most mothers, 99% of mothers, would like their son being shot. I don't think right. that's that I don't think they want to live with that condition. I don't think they want to live with that uncertainty, whether they know that their kid will be killed today or not. I think most people in Iraq and Syria and France, whatever you name them, uh, want to be in that situation which they can still have food and they can still... Uh, and what happens is that these authoritarians, these extremists, try to kind of create the illusion that they can offer that. Mm-hmm. And then they give you that huge sense of uncertainty. And obviously, if you add to it the layer, like the 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 layer of 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 kind of your part of a big war and your part of a war between good and evil, you obviously spice things up. But I think is that, yeah. and 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 when they when these the good things is that these things fail. They always fail. Extremist ideologies. Yeah. And now it's like Utopia. you see. I mean, I've, I've seen it actually even through Aziz, uh, an organization that I met him at, Human Rights Foundation, and they do a lot of conferences of, of people like, you see that many people who are anti-communist are people who actually lived <laughs> under, of course, the, of under course, the Soviet yeah. Union. You see like somebody mm-hmm. who actually lived in, like Gary Kasparov, he lived in Russia, mm-hmm. he lived in, so it's, 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 it shows us that they have lived it and like, you know what, we, we, let's try freedom. That sounds like a good idea. And, and I think that's where, I, I think it's, it's, uh, Martin Luther King, when they say the moral arc is bending toward justice, I think there I is that bend. Um, and, and the thing is like, I mean, nothing, ha- I mean, I don't believe in fate. We have to also have to work hard on it. And that's the thing where I think if we just educate people to critical thinking, give these people the tools, give people that diversity of knowledge and, and, mm. and, and factual information, rather than giving an opinion about something, I was like, oh, here's the history of the Arab world. Here's like kind of the basic that you should know. Other than, there, then there is the Shia version or the Sunni version or mm-hmm. much rather evidence-based in which, you know what? You'll make up your mind if you get exposed to all these different perspectives. And you might see that some perspectives might look very different, but they are coming from the same place or they, and, and just give, I think, allowing people to see that diversity of knowledge. Like we don't know, like in terms of, of editorial policy, like we, we, obviously we, I mean, the only material we don't translate are extremist material. Like we don't, we don't promote Minecraft, we don't mm-hmm. translate Minecraft. And, and I think that, that, but for example, like many things that we translate are also based on what the target audience wants. So if the, mm-hmm. we do a survey, what do you like to be translated? I know many of these people are just random sample, which, so we'll be like, oh, I would like to see uh, articles about women scientists translated. And then we have a team. And we cross articles with one scientist. Some will be like, oh, I want to know about the history of Babylon that's not available on Wikipedia. And they would do history of Babylon. So it's like many of, it's, it's, I mean, in way, editorial policy, well, obviously we have these values that we want to promote. But at the same time, I believe and we believe that even giving people the choice and giving people the freedom, I mean, I grew up in Iraq and not many people ask me, what do I think about something? Or what's, what do I, but just asking people, it's like, oh, what do you think about this? What, and give, kind of give them the say that they can actually 
be in control, not necessarily of their destiny, but be in control of the content they would like to be translated. Yes. And, right. and giving people that kind of uh, sense of choice and, and belief, I think that when people try that, because I think most likely they don't want to be go back, to, don't want to go back to any form of authoritarianism or any form of when they actually try what mm-hmm. what good looks like, what actual good looks like. Um, and I mean, even when people are like immigrants, like when people immigrate to a better country, you don't see them very rare occasions that go back where right. where actually they 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 face war. They were like, wow, look, I can, I'm I'm safe. I'm, um, so people actually try these prosperity and peace and all of that when they actually try them um they will they don't want to go back and i think that's that's where we're aiming to to go to when escape hate continues we're talking about the power of messaging and how some people at least relate to me that they feel that it's hard to compete with extremist messaging because it's so it gives the simple answers it has this seductive draw to it and it makes all these promises but people are responding to your messaging obviously the viewership is very high people want to read this material um and as these people obviously responded very strongly to yours as well, with Raqqa's being slaughtered silently. What is going on with your organization now? Is there still a team locally there in Syria? Yes. So we. So the thing for us, like yeah, we we're still operating in Syria right now. We've started different programs, focusing on youth development, uh, focusing on activism, especially working with uh, local journalists, activists. So we've been providing trainings for different NGOs, different activists and people in there. For us, we focus mainly how to fight the ideology, which is something so many people weren't, and like, I would say like, even like mainly governments weren't focused on. So, so many people or like so many governments and the international community, Everyone have been like celebrating the defeating of ISIS, like the military defeat of ISIS, I would say. But the thing is, like ISIS, ha- ISIS uh, have been defeated military, but it ha- it hasn't been defeated like as an ideology or mm-hmm. as an as a mentality. So the thing is, ISIS is not in Syria or in Iraq or like in in like in certain countries in Africa or like Central Asia. We've seen ISIS everywhere with everywhere with attacks. Like whether it's in Europe, whether it's in the US or Asia, Africa, it's been all over. So the thing is that ISIS ideology got people all over the world. And the thing for us, we always focus on counter narrative, on counter ideology, and we knew that the only way to defeat ISIS ideology is to replace it with another with another ideology and trying to fight with ideas. So right now we're focusing more and mainly on education because we see it as the only way to get not to get like a new generation of ISIS. So everyone was everyone was shocked by the idea of Al Qaeda. Everyone was shocked by Al Qaeda and how horrible and bad Al Qaeda is but the thing when ISIS like when we had ISIS like not everyone like people almost forgot about Al-Qaeda like (laughs) experts like you know professionals stopped talking about Al-Qaeda as it didn't exist exist at all because 
how like how worse ISIS was like if you would like compared with Al Qaeda. So one of like the people that I met was like a professor and someone who's been working in de-radicalization, counter extremism, following like jihadist groups. He said something like made me laugh. He said like if you want to compare Al Qaeda to ISIS. Like Al Qaeda considered as a civil society organization, you know, so <laughs> just to describe how bad ISIS is. So the thing is, yeah, you know, nobody thought that we'd have like like an terror, a terrorist organization worse than Al Qaeda, and we had ISIS. So the thing is, if we wouldn't defeat like the ideology of ISIS, the ideology of extremism, we would be shocked by having like another group where we'd say you know like we, where we'd like have like this way of comparing that that friend said you know ISIS was like a civil society organization you know if you'd compare it to that other group so that's what we've, what we've been like working on so the thing we, we've already started in Raqqa other cities in Syria and uh, we're trying to extend our projects to reach the neighboring countries and then hopefully like in the future we would be able like to replicate those programs in areas where there is extremism or areas where they had extremism in some point. So through education and also empowering people on the ground, um, something that I think is interesting is that when we were both born in 91, and I think at that time, it was after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and there was an idea that democracy, liberal democracy, would, you know, be spread throughout the world and win, triumph, and be the only remaining form of government everywhere. And obviously, it hasn't worked out that way. <laughs> um, and I think there are, there's probably some mistrust of it in certain regions and probably in the regions where you're from due to the way certain things played out. So maybe if you'd like to speak to that a little bit and, and how you think people might be able to regain trust in democracy and whether they actually want it, because some people believe that, you know, it's, they don't. Yeah, I, I just want to, I, I mean, well, other than, than, than me, Aziz, born, both born in 1991, is that we're both education advocates, uh, mm -hmm. as, a, as a long-term mm -hmm. solution. Um, as for your answer, I mean, I mean, obviously that's, that's a question that I've, I've, um, been like struggling with in terms of, of, uh, I mean, I think the, that, I mean, liberal democracy can mean different things in different places and, and, there are different characteristics that could be cultural that, that will not be the same as of everyone else. I'm not trying to be more relativistic in that regard, but, mm. but what I'm saying is that culture does play a role of how these, some of these countries are shaped. And sure. there's no one size fits all solution that in which everything would look the same. I mean, even liberal democracies themselves, there's, I mean, America and Canada might be both considered liberal democracy, but the way like from electoral college in America to, to, right. uh, parliamentary system in Canada and all of that stuff. Even though these are all North American concerned, the West vaguely. And, and so I, I personally, as, I mean, as an organization, I would say is that the, if we equip the people with, with 
with the right information, with factual information, and, and we give them that these are kind of the systems that you want to live in. These are systems that are available, and and there is an option that if people are critically thinking and 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 really following reason and following evidence, as a great book by we translated by Stephen Pinker called The Enlightenment Now, which really explains like that, and and to to, your, to it might be surprised to your audience, but we got a group from Iraq. Uh, during the Iraq protest, requested that we print Enlightenment Now. They emailed us, and I was like, what? A group of Iraq protesters. And then I told them, like, we're not only going to give you permission to print, but we're going to pay you for it to print. And then uh, and a week later, we got another request to actually print other 2,000 books. So we actually have, we had a tent during the Iraq protest uh, a few months ago in which a tent of Enlightenment. And there were people, like, coming oh, in wow. and picking up Enlightenment Now and and, and and there were some other books some people bought from other libraries, like All Liberty and all of this stuff about freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And and when I was asking like some of the the, the people over there, like like okay, so what's this protest about? And 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 like what's kind of there's one common agenda? And freedom of expression and and freedom of religion and kind of uh, in some cases actually the separation of religion and state, like secularism and stuff, mm. seem to have been a central piece of many of these, at least recent protests, not, mm. not the, not the Antifada 1991, but kind yeah. of this, this current protest. So, I, I mean, I, I mean, in terms of like, how would that really pan out if these same protesters were trained enough to be able to uh, have civic engagement, to be able to form political parties and is, is, is for their own to decide, but I think it's most likely will have Common characteristics that that allow um, a freedom of expression, that allow so, some freedom compared to others, and also, I mean, for example, it's like I mean, I've, I've lived in many countries, and I've said this. For example, it's like like Singapore, right? It's, it's an interesting model in which people are economically prosperous, but they don't have the the the, the kind of freedom of speech and, and and that exists in the West. But but in many cases, like Singapore is not well. It's authoritarian in some things; they're free on others, and yeah. and and but if you ask many people there, they'll probably prefer living in Singapore than they would prefer living in America mm. based upon the safety and the prosperity they have. Is Singapore the worst possible situation people might end up in the Middle East? Well, I wish we had like Singapore. <laughs> uh, right. I, I think I think if, if we end up even without the, the, the liberal democracy, but but a country with peace, good education mm-hmm. system, prosperity, and whether um, and, and obviously coexistence in terms of of different sects and different religions mm. and everybody at least is equal under the law, not favoring this sect over that sect, etc. Um, I mean, that I don't see that as really a bad outcome for the Middle East. Uh, is it the best outcome? Is there, is there a better outcome in which in which people can, I mean, adding the the, the freedom of press into it? And, and I mean, I, I would I would not want to live in Singapore even if I was prosperous. I'm a big fan of freedom of speech, mm. freedom of press, and I love the fact that. I mean, one of the things that I was always afraid of in Iraq is just the fact that our oh, militia might target you for saying this, or the government. Yeah. And but I just happened to be an opinionated person. But if I was not an opinionated person, <laughs> and and uh, and would I, my main things in life would be I just want my kids to be safe, and I just want to have a good life, and and be have a vacation once in a while, and live in a. Um, so th- there are all these like different models that exist. Uh, that eventually, I mean, th- I think. Uh, that's my own personal philosophy, not in a way. Uh, I think people, like a kind of the hierarchy of needs is that 
I think liberal democracy comes up later in terms of the hierarchy. Very, yeah. of things, but I think is that I, I'm a very big fan of a gradual change. And yes. we, and, 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 and as I said, like some cultures have never had the experience of, of liberal democracy. I mean, forget about the Middle East. I mean, China never had a liberal democracy. Mm. Um, and neither did Russia had a liberal democracy. No. And all of these are, are superpowers. They, they've had phases of some freedom compared to others. Some, some leaders were, were less. And, and I don't want to live in neither of these countries. But what I'm saying is that these, I mean, I think is that, I mean, based on the Enlightenment now, which I think also a very important book, is that it shows that that in many cases, these two things are also connected. The, the uh, prosperity and liberal democracy are mm-hmm. connected. And, 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 and as Professor Binker did a great job in really providing evidence of why this is the claim. Um, the, the question is that how, to what are the steps that people need to take to actually eventually reach that, Even that get there? Mm-hmm. Get there or, and is 60% of it is enough? I, I, I tend to believe, I mean, I, I mean, we all have a, a short lifetime and we, we can only do so much. But I think that I do believe that within, within our lifetime, we might be able to, to move at least. I mean, some parts of the Middle East are like Singapore, like the UAE and, yeah. and stuff. They do have a lot of prosperity, but these are a very small state yes. in, in terms of population. But if we're able to move kind of the Middle East in, into or at least the parts like where I come from and Aziz come from, which people with Sunni, Shias, Christians, all of that stuff, in which many, in which other than employment rate is 40%, we would take it down mm. to five. Other than uh, tons of, of uh, extremist militias and stuff, is that these people become resentful. And most people, when it's Christmas or when it's Eid, it's the Christians celebrate with the Muslims and the Muslims celebrate with the Christians. And in many cases, that was in, in Iraq and Syria. Yeah. I mean, at least what my dad said, and I, I trust him on this, is that, mm. I mean, 60s Iraq, 670s Syria, there was a time in which None of these things actually mattered of whether you're from a Christian sector or whether you're from Shia yeah. sector or stuff like that. So, so if that if that was possible to happen, I don't really see why it cannot happen again. In which Iraq not necessarily can go back to the 60s, but can see these examples of coexistence of pluralism that existed in the 60s, then can be applied today. Whether the Wall Street Journal will be able to be published there is, mm-hmm. is, 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 is at this moment optional. It's but, only, yeah, it's but, a later concern. But it would be great too. And I think mm-hmm. it's that if we, if we kind of, uh, work hard, turn, turn to at least a specific place in which, uh, like, I, I don't think many people now, I think neither in Iraq and Syria know what normal life looks like. Like they don't know at mm-hmm. least what peace looks like in terms of, because all of that, what they grew up with is worse. I think, what I'm recommending is that, is that we have a peaceful period <laughs> with, yeah. with less wars and less conflicts for a period of time. And then if we want to reach a liberal democracy or at least whatever that, whatever form that takes, I think, um, it, with good education, with good critical thinking, people might be able, whatever decision they're going to make, they're going to make a good decision. But if they are taught with the propaganda and conspiracy theories their entire life, whatever decision they're going to make is a bad decision. So I think, I, mm-hmm. I, what I'm in favor of is equipping people with the tools that they will be able to make decisions for themselves. Um, and I think some tools that when people know them, when they know, when they know media literacy, when they realize what a sensational headline yeah. is that is spread by extremists or authoritarian or what the actual facts are. And when they know these basic things, I think in the, they, whatever decision they're going to make of what leadership they want to choose, it's probably going to be a better decision than they would otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. 
Aziz, your thoughts about, as you're both talking about freedom of speech and education and empowering people on the ground, I pointed out the fact that when you were both born in 91, it was after the collapse of the Soviet Union and democracy was thought to become spread around the world. Um, obviously, it didn't work out that way in Syria. And if there's a certain kind of distrust in that system or in the West as a result of that? Yeah, so the thing is, like, when we talk about, like, freedom of speech or democracy, so the thing is, like, uh, and we try to link it to the Middle East. So the thing, like, in the Middle East, I would, like, speak about Syria first. So yes. the thing in Syria, like, like before, like, 2011, uh, it was, like, you know, the freedom of uh, everything, like, the freedom of clothes, the freedom of, like, you know, whether you can drink or not drink, like, dress this way or not dress this way. So nobody would force you to do, like, such things. So we had, like, a, f we had, like, a limited freedom, but not when is it up to politics and economy. So the thing is, like a big topic in the Middle East. As women, if you would go to the beach, you would find like women wearing bikinis, like others like next to them are like completely covered, you know, and it wasn't like a big deal. You know, you can like go and drink, like even if you're Muslim or not Muslim. So the thing so many people would say, you know, there is Christians in Syria. So that's why alcohol is legal in Syria. But I would say like Muslims drink more than Christians in Syria, like up to my personal knowledge. So, and which is a thing, a thing that the majority, and I can say all Arab governments, or the region government have been doing for like the past decades and years, whenever they find themselves in a situation that they are threatened, they would play the religious card or the racism card or whatever. I do agree with Faisal. So the thing is before, like before 2011, I had no idea what like Shia or Sunni mean. I know there's like Christians because they go to the church, but it wasn't mm. like a thing, you know? So I did celebrate like Christians events mm. in Syria more than any, more than anywhere else. Like, you know, although I've lived in Europe and I love, I live here in the, in the United States right now. So the thing is, it was like a huge celebration. I've been like to the church so many times as like a Muslim guy. It wasn't like a big deal. Nobody like would come after me. But the thing is like when the Syrian revolution started, the regime would strengthen that idea. Like the end of 2011, the beginning of 2012, just like to go backwards a bit when Iraq war started, the majority of jihadists entered Iraq through Syria. So... Yes. They would land like in Damascus, like the, even like under like the regime protection, like the regime would like drive them or like get them into buses, drive them all the way to the Iraqi borders where they crossed the borders, fought in Iraq. And so many of them, they returned or like went back to Syria, you know, the Syrian regime arrested all of them, like the majority of jihadists who went back to Syria. And in 2011, like the end of 2011, like, af like after like nine months when the Syrian revolution started, the revolution started in March 2011. The end of 2011, the end, uh, the end of 2000, 2011, sorry, the beginning of 2012, the Syrian regime released all those jihadists. You know, they did what they call it like a general amnesty to clean jails. And it was like only for like political 
black prisoners or what's mm. so called. So he released like Bashar al-Assad released all those jihadists. So what would you imagine those jihadists would do? You know, would like go and you know open schools and like <laughs> farms and gardens. <laughs> so the majority of the extremists and the jihadists in Syria, although I hate the word jihadist, but I don't know that's the best way to describe it. So uh, why they, do you hate the word? I don't know because like I jihad in Islam, it doesn't mean like to go and blow yourself up, you know. Right, of course I, not. No. Yeah, yeah, you know, like in Islam, like if you'd go and study, that consider jihad, you know. So, okay. and the thing is, like you know, there are like certain words that turn to be like a racist words, you know. If you're like named Osama, you should be like a bad person, like you know. So many people like put it that way. So mm -hmm. jihad in Islam, like if we would like talk about it from like an Islamic perspective or background, jihad is, it's not like, you know, with fighting. You can like go and study and that consider like, you know, or like, you know, knowledge, information, all those things consider jihad. So mm -hmm. it's like a, a big topic like to talk about. But like, yeah, my point is like that those like extremists, when they were released from the jails of the government, they established and started most of the extremism groups in Syria. So the Syrian regime mm -hmm. knew and had a plan that like by releasing those, he would like strengthen the idea that, you know, uh, we're here, we all like, we're like living like peacefully. And then those people are trying to divide our society and at the same time using them as an excuse to bomb areas. You know, when like, when like would come out and say, you know, the Syrian regime has been like bombing that area, killing civilians, they would say, oh, there's like these extremism mm -hmm. groups in that area and we're fighting ex extremism and tourism. So the thing is, it was like a way that so many governments in the region have used. They would try to strengthen the fight of like uh, ethnicity, the fight mm. of race, color, religion, all those things and get people to fight over it to forget about like the main goal. So, and here like, and I would say like for us like, and for our region, we've reached out like a level of freedom of speech. We, I've never thought that would reach that we would reach it. I'm not saying we're like in the perfect situation regarding like freedom of speech. But the thing is, you know, like right now, like when I talk with any like Syrian kid, like, you know, 15, 13 years old, I feel that I'm talking with an adult. I'm not saying that's mm -hmm. like a right, a right, right. thing, yeah. but like they can like talk about the geopolitics of the region. They can talk about politics. The role of Iran was what's happening in Iraq, what happened in Egypt. They can compare things. They know name of president, ministers, you know, like militia leaders, mm -hmm. all those things. So the knowledge that they have and the way how they would discuss or argue something, it's like completely different. Like, you know, when I go out here to my friends who have kids, like all their, all what, their kids talk about it's like you know i want a candy i want to watch the <laughs> commentary or whatever so for me i'm like I'm, you know 15 year olds maybe <laughs> yeah so for me like when i try like in my mind like to compare like a syrian kid who who's been through like hell and survived and like you know gained all this big huge knowledge and you know like a regular normal kid like in the u.s or in europe or whatever like the way of thinking i would say it, that that's like absolutely a bad thing you know because those kids haven't lived there like the syrian kids haven't lived their life of kids you know where they had yeah. like access to education where they had like 
you know, a backyard where they can play safe, safe, mm-hmm. safely, you know, and not getting like bombed, killed, arrested or whatever. So, but at the same time, like when you look on the other side, those kids and like the Syrian generation have gained like a huge knowledge. So many people that I've been like monitoring or like following on social media to see like the way how they've changed. Many of them, they were like pro-government and then they've noticed like how bad is the government. Many of them did supported like Al-Qaeda or ISIS and mm. then they've noticed how bad Al-Qaeda and ISIS. So the thing like in Syria, as it's been like almost 10 years and uh, we we weren't successfully able to have a change in the regime or in the government, but hopefully soon, that have like people like having like that long term to realize so many things. I would say, unlike Egypt, you know, when like the revolution started in Egypt, they were like able able to defeat to defeat like Hosni Mubarak, and then Morsi came. Mm-hmm. So Morsi wasn't like the best choice, but the thing is, you know, it was like a short term. So people, they were like all like the, so many people, they were like all like you know cheering for Morsi. Then Morsi was defeated. Then a Sisi came. So it turned, and they ended up like having like a dictatorship. So the thing is, so many people would argue that it was like a, a short term. So people weren't able to develop really like a, like a, men, a new mentality mm-hmm. that you can say, you know, I hate the regime. Because yeah. for us and for our, like in our region, we would have like the same like president, the same family rolling for like ages, like for yeah. 30, 40 ages, mm-hmm. like, sorry, 30, 40 years. Like, you know, in the situation of Syria and like yeah. some other countries, you would have like the same family. So mm-hmm. the thing is, and like the, th- the main thing that they would do that they would spread fear among people, you know, like being like a political prisoner in the Middle East. It's like a bad thing, you know, like you would, it means like that your not only you, your family, your relatives wouldn't have like access like to jobs as the rest of the people. They wouldn't have like the same education. They would be followed. They would be tortured. They would be through hell. You as like a political person, you would might spend like ages or years in jail, might be killed in jail. So the thing they always cared people out to speak out about politics and economy. So. That's the thing that we would have, but the thing is, like with the Arabic spring, and I hopefully those we were like able to defeat like some like dictatorships. I always, I'm always like optimistic about the situation in Tunisia. You know, I'm not mm. saying it's like a perfect situation, but it all starts step by step. So the thing is, like in the Middle East, you know, like we can't be like Norway in a week or right. in a year or 10 years, you know, that mm. would take time, you know, to reach up to those levels. You know, even like if you would look at Europe after the Second World War, they had like a period of time, like to rebuild, like to yeah. rethink, like to establish democracy or whatever, that when the war was over. So the thing is like the... The, the Arabic spring, the revolutions, the wars are not over yet in the Middle East. And then whenever they are over, you know, that would also take us like another period of time to reestablish. And, but the good thing that people have learned that, you know, whenever or whatever, like I would, I'm talking about Syria here, that whoever like president would come in the future, that people would have the power to go and say, you know, we've learned, we've had like, you know, the majority of the extremism groups, the majority of uh, the majority of militias, 
we've had like almost all governments like yeah. being involved in Syria, like whether it's like Europe, the U.S., like mm-hmm. Iran, Russia, Qatar, Gulf State, Turkey. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point people joke about it that we hosted people or governments like in Syria more than the World Cup, you know. <laughs> Because it turned out to be like another like competition where like governments just come yeah. and compete. So people, they all like develop this mentality and ideology and ideas that we can say, you know, we see like the bad and the good part of all governments, of all militias, of all like those things. So it would be hard for like the future president of Syria, you know, like if anyone would run to be a president of Syria, it wouldn't it wouldn't be like an easy mission because like even kids are educated like you know when is it like oh we can say that thing we can we can say that we don't like the president you know yeah. and people would always say like we are like the people who face like ISIS Al Qaeda we face Assad we face like pearl bombs chemical attacks air strikes like all those things so we would be able to face like any new president so it wouldn't be like an easy thing. And so it's been always like the problem that, you know, after like wars, when wars are over, when revolutions are over, when dictatorships are defeated, what's the next step? So if you would be able to plant seeds for like a new democratic liberal government or liberal society would have it. Otherwise, like another dictator would come and replace the previous dictator because you can't change the mentality of people living under like dictatorship for 40, 50 years and tell them like, you know, come now, we're becoming like Norway. We're having like democracy and liberty in three days. Right. I want to give a special thanks to all VPN companies uh, uh, in, in the technology industry uh, in which they, because I think that's what, what really makes kind of the 21st century unique in a way, is that uh, and also at like satellite television that also kind of give exposure on the TV sense, is that now, I mean, I, I remember growing up and I would say, I wouldn't say it's the main motivation, but it was definitely motivation for, for many of people my age where we were seeing like we have satellite television that's after Saddam was fall because before it was banned, but but after it was falls, like we'll see like shows like Friends and, 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 uh, Seinfeld and even like uh, movies and stuff like that. And we, and obviously the internet and YouTube and, and all of these things. And we see like videos of like the prosperity of peace of, of people getting along. And, and then at the same time, you go outside the street and you see dead bodies and, 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 uh, and I think what, what, what internet is, is able to do, um, I think that's why, like, we, we have put more resources in modernization towards digital space than the physical space is that that kind of exposure that it was not possible before. Um, I mean, I remember when, when Saddam Hussein was in power, um, the United States and, and also France, there's a channel called Monte Carlo that they established radio channels on the borders of Iraq. They put it one in Kuwait and I think one was in Turkey. And they used to broadcast at 3 a.m. Um, or 2 a.m. when the signal was better at night of like stories of dissidents, uh, of, of, of mm. people who were, uh, under Saddam Hussein and stuff like that. Unfortunately, like, yes, there were people who were able to do that, but it was very, li- like very yeah. few people, only the educated knew about number one, that radio exists and they go at two in the morning putting the radio. I, m- I remember because my dad once did it and I, 
and I and I had enough to listen to to Radio Sawa. It's called Radio Sawa. Which is, mm. um, and uh, however, now is like it's so easy to access information. And 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 the thing is that I mean, thank goodness uh, is that the Middle East is not China right now. So it doesn't have the extreme firewall uh, that that exists in China. And so in a way, it's like it's not that extreme there either. Right, from what I hear, my, my brothers. I mean, it's there. still like I mean, yeah. I think many VPNs like able to at least for my yes, for my knowledge that, is that they're able even in Iran. Like I, mm -hmm. I know I have a lot of friends who still live there, and I see them posting on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. the the thing is that I mean, even like these apps like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of that stuff, you are able to communicate with people outside your country. Are able to communicate even with people who are from your country but live overseas who can tell you what's what's life is like to, mm -hmm. speak, to speak your own language so you don't even need to learn a new language. Yes. You, um, so you have all of that kind of a world library in your pocket, mm -hmm. um, especially like easily accessible websites like Wikipedia and all of that. So I mean, talk about the maturity that that Aziz talking about and I was talking about with the students of Mosul uh, is that. So I mean, and people sometimes ask me, is like, how you get like enlightenment now? Why, why do people like a middle yeah. eighteen-year-old in Iraq are, are getting enlightenment now? And, and my answer for this is that, in a way, they're forced to. In a way, it's like, like, why did I learn about Sunni Shia prayers and all of that when I was in Iraq? Did I? I mean, my parents were secular. I didn't. I wasn't really forced to do any mm -hmm. of these things. Why would I do that? I was forced to, 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 to learn. And in a way, I was also forced to learn English because. Most of the information is in Arabic. So in a way, it's like, it's not like, yeah. like, like if, if you speak English, you don't really need to learn another language because in a way, most of scientific articles, everything is yes. a language. So you don't need to learn another language. But in a way is that you, many cases, we are forced to like, what, know what's, what's out there. And, 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 and to kind of make kind of a similar correlation with, with Europe, even though obviously histories are different. But if you look at enlightenment, at least my understanding of enlightenment in Europe, and it grew up as a result of a, of a sectarian civil war. But it grew up from the Protestants and the Catholics killing each other for, for decades. And then that kind of ideology that's like, you know what, let's reject both of these and let's have individual rights. And, and, and I'm, and I think that not to make any, any comparison because I, I don't want to ignore the unique histories that both of these regions have, but is that I think we're kind of having a similar moment in that regard. The, 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 because people have seen the sectarian warfare, have seen all of that, and they see it's not working. They see that their life is more miserable than it was before. They see that these authoritarians are not able to provide food and shelter, not provide all of that. And then they're like, oh, look, well, there is this idea called the Enlightenment, and it has been applied, at least some of it has, in some countries in, in Austria or in Germany or in, or in the United States or in Canada and all these places. and these are the places, I mean, unfortunately, like if you do surveys to a lot of young people in the Middle East, they would, if they tell you what the most thing you want in life, they would tell they want immigrants. Um, which is, which is sad. It's a kind of, but, but at the same time, it shows it's like, they look at these places and this is the places that they, they would like to live in. So, so they, they make, I think many people, because it will take a, a very intelligent person to do so, is that to make the correlation between why the West ended up the way it is and, and, and why, and it is because of freedom of expression. It is because of many of these stuff that, that, uh, like if you ask them, it's like, oh, if you as a Muslim, do you, when you are in Australia, do you want to be still a Muslim? Yes. But they're a Christian as well. I like freedom of religion idea. So, mm. so, so they, they, I mean, obviously not everybody reached that advanced level, but I think 
many are realizing that what is now the case is not working. And there are some samples that you can look at through the internet, through satellite television. Um, and, and in the case of Tunisia, it's actually pretty great because it's a country within the region. Obviously, they have their, their own unique case, but, but they speak Arabic. They have kind of a similar history to some of us. And they say, look, like Tunisia seems to be doing well and, and they are there. And, I, and, and, but think about that, like even like now, so now it's like with the technologies, like you are 24 seven being able to see what's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting these tools, especially like, like, I mean, there's critical thinking tools, but also the, the, the technology tools, VPNs and others, that even when these things, there is a reason why this knowledge is, is censored, but there's also something there's a, as this is a, is a common proverb called al-mamnu' marghub. And mamnu' marghub is what is prohibited is wanted. So in many cases, when there is a resentment against that regime, and there is a resentment against that terrorist group, and that terrorist group bans that movie or yeah. bans that book, in some cases, you see that book is more downloaded <laughs> than sure. it's actually mm-hmm. been, the, been the case if it was not banned, because nobody would have heard of mm-hmm. it. But the fact that they see that the government itself, which is the same government that is creating the unemployment, or creating that, is banning this book, yeah. is saying this movie needs to be banned. In some cases, is it creating that backlash, especially within the younger generation, such as those who are like, well, if this government is banning it, maybe I should, I should see what, what it is. Yeah. Um, so I think is, is that there, I do believe that like this, the, what I think is unique in the 21st century is, I mean, there are two things. There are things that are bad is that destruction is now more stronger than the 21st century because of the advancement of weaponry. Right. But also, what is also good is this, uh, knowledge and knowledge sharing and information sharing. In the, I mean, the age of information that we live in, in which, uh, I mean, the way I was, for example, learning English when I was growing up is, and I grew up in kind of a more free internet, it was Saddam Hussein, is that I used to like go in these chat rooms and then it's like, oh, who wants to learn Arabic? And then I, I, I like, I see like these students, master's degree students, whatever, who study Arabic or study international politics. And they used to teach me English and I used to teach them Arabic. Mm-hmm. And through the internet, I was able to interact with like students in Princeton and students in, yeah. in Germany and stuff like that. And I'm like sitting at my small house in Baghdad on a, on a desktop computer. And, and, and I was able to connect with, and then it's like after the language conversation ends up, then the question is like, Oh, well, how's Germany like? Or how's Iraq mm-hmm. like? So, so just that exposure, well, if you take it back to, 10 years ago, 10, 10 years ago before that happening, I just Saddam Hussein, in which satellite television is banned, uh, borders are banned, you can hardly get a, get a passport, the likelihood of you being exposed to anything beyond the Ba'ath Party, the nationalism, or the... Yeah. It's almost close to zero. So compared to now, is 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 much higher rates mm-hmm. of exposure. It, you are... In that case, that makes more the case that these ideas might be able to make their way in, in the, in the region. Enlightenment values meaning is that they are, they are, it's easier now to access them than ever before. Um, and I think that's, that's what also gives me hope in, 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 in the possibility of this. I mean, in, in, in Europe, it took, it took, it took centuries. And, and I, and I think that maybe with the internet and information, uh, there might be an expedite, it will be an expedite, expedited thing, and it will be gradual. And I think is 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 some places will will take a different approach than others. But I think that 
the exposure to enlightenment values is now more than ever. I think it's definitely going to come up with better results. That's my, that's what keeps me optimistic. Uh, even when there was a global pandemic going on. I was, yes. I still maintain <laughs> some optimism. That's good. Uh, I appreciate the optimism from both of you. Um, I want to ask one final question and then we'll wrap up, um, which is basically just, now you've both been here in the U.S. and um, for a while, uh, Aziz, how long? Are, um, you're muted, but Faisal for seven years. And how, how I've, I've been here like three years or something. December 2017. So like, like I would say like January 2018. Like I came like after Christmas, like okay, before so the new year in three days. So two years, yeah. Two years, um, and. We've been talking about things like the sectarian conflicts, um, you know, how both sides ultimately are kind of doing each other's biddings and everyone loses out in the end, and things like um, misinformation and messaging and freedom of speech and these values. In the U.S., I'm sure you're aware, there's now a culture war, basically, where I would say it doesn't rise to anywhere near that level, but there is the polarization, the demonizing of one side to the other, um, which I think kind of leaves no winners. And um, also a lot of talk about censorship. And you, you know, you mentioned the forbidden fruit idea that when something is banned or forbidden, it only makes people more curious. So here I think with, and also the, the power of social media and the internet and information, which can be used as misinformation, curious young kids, you know, in, in a country where enlightenment texts are banned might be looking that up, but here where the things that you don't translate, the mind comps and everything else are banned, maybe they're drawn to that and can find it online. Um, as, you know, refugees and as outsiders from war zones who came here on the strength of your work and who work to promote education and um, you know, freedom of speech and all, all of these ideals. What are some of your thoughts about what's going on here in this country and how, you know, it might play out? Aziz, go ahead. So, so the thing is, you know, I'm, I'm not here like in, in a refugee status. Like I just like, I had like a tourism visa and I, I, I applied for a new visa, like the AB1 visa. So, but okay. the thing is like, you know, I always like consider myself like as a displaced person and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a refugee, like, you know, so I don't have like a country where I have its own passport. So I'm not allowed okay. to have a Syrian passport. Oh, because, really? Yeah, I don't have a Syrian passport. And I don't have like any passport from any other country. So, so at the end of the day, I'm like a refugee, a displaced person. And the thing is like the way how like intern, the international community and countries, like especially the Western countries have been dealing with refugees and the topic of refugees. So whether it's Europe or the United States, and I would like to talk more about the United States as I live here right now. So the thing is, uh, even 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 before like the Curtin administration, you know, so the previous administration, Obama administration, 
not that many refugees were able to come to the United States, you know, from like Syria, from Iraq, Afghanistan, and other countries. And with the Clinton administration, the Trump administration, like it's almost nobody. So that they started with the travel ban, and then like it's been like clear that the U.S. has been more getting into a racist phase of administrations you know when is it like about refugees and if you do if you would look at the number of uh, like the percentage of attacks against like refugees people of colors that i would say like the percentage of racism has increased here in the u.s as i've heard i'm not like 100 sure about it like i'm not aware of statistics mm-hmm. but the thing is uh, you know like As an example, I know so many Syrians who who got like a scholarship, you know, to study here in the United States, or like so many others from like like Afghanistan or other countries who wanted to come to the U.S. for treatment, and they weren't able only because of their nationality. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the United States, whether the United States or Europe, they are involved, like you know, in the in wars in the Middle East, and like many wars are where like. Not they not create, but they were like one of the main reason to have wars like on and on in the region or like around the world. So they mm. take a responsibility on that. And the thing is, even if they are not responsible, they weren't able or they didn't succeed to stop wars like the war in Syria. So the thing is, like the United States had the power under Obama administration to defeat Assad and not get into the situation where Syria is right now having ISIS, Al Qaeda, all those like militias and governments being involved. So the thing is, they always like have the refugees as an excuse, and they always talk about refugees as they are like the threat. And the thing is, like they tr- they never thought how to stop like the source or like the main reason why those people end up as refugees so for me as someone who lived in europe like 80 to 85 percent of syrians who escaped or seeked asylum uh, sought asylum in europe germany yeah yeah in germany they all like sought asylum in germany or in europe because of the same because of the syrian regime like 80 to 85 percent of them so the thing is if you want to stop like refugees coming out coming out like to Europe or coming to the United States, like just like easily defeat Assad, like help like to find like a political solution or whatever mm. solution to defeat Assad or to remove Assad. And that could be like used in the future. So as they are like threatened of the refugees or people coming from like certain countries, like stop the main reason why those people are like becoming refugees so right now everyone is like we want to send like refugees back to syria the situation is like getting better but like the thing like you're sending them back to death so many like syrians who sought asylum in europe they went back they would like either arrested when they got back they would like they were like say, like driven to the military service where they died later on like got killed later on or were like in troubles so the thing is like syria and like so many countries are not a safe place and those people who sought asylum or decided to escape they didn't just leave like you know like seeking you know to tourism or like you know having fun or like stealing right. someone's job you know they were like living in hell you know having like air strikes bomb chemical attacks And all those things, and like so far, we have like millions of Syrians have been killed, like like 
almost like a million have been killed and like arrested. Like right now, like like half of the Syrian population are displayed and refugees living like in really bad condition, whether it's like in Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan and the neighboring country, they live like a life nobody would wish. So the thing is people wouldn't leave their homes or their their like neighborhoods, their beloved ones unless they are forced to. Yeah. Um, that's a good, uh, good point to, uh, keep in mind for people sometimes <laughs> that try to demonize refugees. Um, I was asking more about, you know, cause clearly that's, that's policy that isn't, um, I don't think it's a proud one for the United States. Certainly a lot of the, uh, situations that uh, American involvement in the Middle East have not been, um, not been proud moments for this country. I don't think, um, to turn back though, to sort of, I was talking about like domestically the culture war within the United States where there is a bit of concern about extremism here now. Um, various ideologies. I mean, even the one that I kind of deal with, which is the, like a misogynist group, the, the incels, um, that I think people are drawn to because they have, um, a lack of feeling purpose and meaning and the things that you both spoke about as being, making people vulnerable and susceptible to this kind of messaging. Um, so the fact that this is going on here now, there is a bit of demonizing domestically in between political sides, basically left versus right, progressive versus conservative, um, to a point that's getting, um, I think very heightened and is probably contributing to certain, um, extremist movements that might become violent. Um, being that you're from a place that has had that going on for a long time, one side demonizing the other. Um, what are your thoughts about the situation here um, in this country in terms of the polarization where here it's not religious, it's political. Um, there's also, you know, as, as everywhere, tribalism comes in many forms, whether it's religious, racist-based, you know, misogynistic. Um, but here in a country where there is freedom of speech, where there is relatively open access to information. Um, you know, why do you think that's going on here now? And what might some lessons that you've learned from, you know, situations you've dealt with kind of be applied to here? Is this to me or to Aziz? Whoever wants to answer to you. Go Aziz, ahead. You want to finish? Because I, I can, I can, because uh, I talk too much. So uh, you can start, Faisal. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, first I would say is that uh, as of last year, uh, I became a U.S. citizen. So now I consider myself one of an insider uh, as well. Um, and uh, I definitely, I, I've abused my U.S. passport the moment I got it, in which I was uh, a week after I went to a metal concert in Montreal, and then I went to Europe for another metal festival. So I'm definitely living some American dream, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think one, one thing that's probably worth mentioning, uh, maybe that's my, my kind of pinkerite, uh, uh, education here is that 
I mean, America or the West is not living a historic moment in history and polarization. I mean, there, there was uh, times of, of slavery and there were wars with Nazi Germany and and uh, and in ways like we are living in a way in the most peaceful century mm-hmm. in, in a long time, uh, actually in, in in all of human history. Um, and that's something that, uh, that that makes you either believe in the human race or make you not believe in the human race. It's like, it, it, I mean, if, if we if, if if humans existed for 100,000 years and they only figured out slavery was wrong only like 500 years ago, so for 99,000 years they they realized slavery was okay. But but I think I think I I, I do agree with you with something I've noticed. I mean, I, I would say extremism. I mean, polarization is the seed for extremism. I mean, is that mm-hmm. yeah. so? So, I mean, ex- the way the, the end phase. I mean, if you look at extremism as a spectrum, you have violent extremism. That's the, the end, and then you have kind of extremism, non-violent extremism. And these are people who might hold extremist belief but not really act on them. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who um, are, are inhibit some, so they're kind of uh, say moderate extremists to some extent. So, yeah. and then there, and then there's the kind of the polarization. Which is the ecosystem. So that's kind of like where most people live in. Um, and I do see, see it. I mean, one of the, I would say one of the uh, privileges that, I, that I've had, um, in America is that I get to be, be like, I mean, I, I obviously have an experience that is in America that is different to even many people here. And, and I've like been to 40 states. I've, I've been in states in the South and, and my, my parents live in Texas and I live in New York and, so for me, it's like this kind of West Coast, East Coast, South, Midwest thing doesn't really exist doesn't because exist. I travel all the time. And I have seen people who who really attend my speeches from all parts of the political aisle, including my, my, my organization is funded pretty much even include people who support the left, the people who support the right. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and I think I think that way, I mean, even though I was I was so many times try to be pulled in one way or another is that I always try sure. to, to, to refuse that kind of narrative of looking to people through the purely political angle of right wing, left wing, uh, Christian, might male, brown oppressed. Mm-hmm. Like I, I refuse to kind of, it, it's, it's definitely easy to understand to look at the world through these dynamics yeah. of oppressive, but versus really looking at people as humans and so, and I think that's, that's kind of like, is, is the part of the solution because, or is the solution because there are always going to be political disagreements and there are always going to be religious disagreements. And, and this is something mm-hmm. that is get a part of the human condition. You, you can look at a specific uh, arts and then people will say, I hate that. And people say, I love that. And, right. and, and, and some of these things obviously are objective, but some of them are, are, are subjective. So not to get too philosophical, but I think is, is so, so the polarization element, I mean, I think that there is no, there is a problem. I mean, actually, like in this conversation, we talked a lot about the positive aspects of social media. We're talking about mm-hmm. people seeking social media, uh, to seek other information and to see, uh, to, to be enlightened to some extent. And then there is the other use of social media that is opportunists are trying to do to divide the public, to stir people. I mean, from whatever direction that, that create that sensational headline that, uh, uh, ben Shapiro destroys a yes, left wing right. student or a left wing student. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's like let's think <laughs> destroys a right wing apologist. So so when you have that kind of emotions running high, their reason 
takes a bad seat. That's mm-hmm. when reason, rationality, any form of humanism, of looking at each other as people as humans, but political disagreements versus, oh, I want to fuck this guy. <laughs> Not yeah. yourself, but, but, but like, I want to do, like, using this terminology, and obviously it has been abused so much on, on, on social media. I mean, I think I, I am worried, to say the least. I mean, I, I do uh, worry that this polarization gets worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, I mean, I think that there is a lot of foreign uh, policy um, like effects. Actually, it, it has a huge damage on foreign policy, yeah. including domestic, like, like, for example, I mean, not to mention the name of the journalist, but, but I, uh, in, in Iraq, I was involved in organizing a women's rights conference and, and I was kind of a volunteer there. And there was an international journalist from a very well-known media source. And he really liked it. He was more, I'll say, on the liberal side, but he refused to run the story because he didn't want to posit the story about Iraq because he was anti-Bush. Mm. And he, and, mm. and, and, and so at the time, Anything that was remotely positive happened in Iraq when Bush was the president mm-hmm. was actually not published. And if it was published by the other side or the, by the pro side, it was more as a propaganda yeah. tool. It's like, oh, look, look at America liberating these, these yep. people and look whether. So, so that kind of, because the Iraq war is actually, I would say, is one of the most polarizing subjects of that, that at least that I know of, um, of, of the century. And, that polarization, so when Obama came to power, to, 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 and I lived both terms in Iraq for mm-hmm. the presidency, and they had completely different policy because yeah. of polarization. There was currently, um, and U.S. just withdraw out of nowhere with no mm-hmm. plan, with no, yes. uh, um, and, and then we talk about ISIS, of course, with all of the vacuum. And so yep. the thing is like, so that polarization really, in a way, has been responsible for killing a lot of lives. That, that kind of mm-hmm. no, room for is that this other guy is completely wrong and I'm completely right and I destroy left wing destroys this guy destroys and the more and more that that's different the more the voting and, and the elections becomes about not that I agree with that person is that I want to I will vote for this person because he will destroy the destroy other side destroy the yeah and and, and, and and that is kind of the end goal because that's the, what, what we grew up with, I think, with, with Aziz, is that I see people, for example, I grew up with voting, for example, for the Shia party, not because they believe that the Shia party is, is good, but it's because they're going to protect them from the Sunnis. Mm-hmm. That was the number one priority. Number one mm-hmm. priority was not that I agree with this guy or anything like that. It was like, okay, who is going to defend us from these bad Sunnis over there or vice versa? The enemy of was, my was, enemy. So, so, yeah. so that is what I would say the end goal of polarization is that it becomes less about policy mm-hmm. and less about anything factual except the fact that I am voting against the person that I hate. Yep. And you know what? There are examples of that in America. There are, there, there oh, are, yeah. I, I, I'm seeing and the elections are coming up mm-hmm. and, and I can, I'm hearing I'm hearing less about why do they like the candidate they're picking Nothing. and more about the candidate that they hate. Yes. And I, I mean, obviously I think what really keeps America intact is the rule of law. Yep. Um, and, 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 and the police and, and the armed forces. Thank goodness. I would say this is in a very stable place. I'm in, I'm in Virginia. I can see the Pentagon is doing pretty well. I'm not <laughs> worried about anywhere the security of the United States is going, going badly. But I would say is that it, it, it is worth mentioning that what, if the rule of law becomes less strong for whatever mm-hmm. reason, I mean, we're talking about global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Maybe we live in an age in which the police is less right. busy of, of 
of dealing with disputes comparing to dealing with kind of larger mm-hmm. issues. And this amount of hatred that exists between between people of different political aisle, I find it to be extremely dangerous. I mean, yeah. thank goodness we have the we have the rule of law. But, mm-hmm. but the thing is that if that rule of law reduces, and then there is the only reason why I'm voting this way is because I hate that other person, or I hate the, I hate the South, or I hate these elitist East Coasters, or I hate. And if this is the only reason, then then it's it's a not a good place to be. I I I, I think is that there should be efforts. And I'm sure I think we are podcast one of them, and there are other efforts that's happening. I see right now is to deal with this as a major problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we should not look at the Middle East as how things should be. Or anyways, I mean, this is what we are seeing is that that's the end of the spectrum. That's mm-hmm. if you go with this hatred polarization, and you give you give the people with that energy and hatred. An AK-47. This is what happens. Yeah. This, is, this is the pictures and the videos you see is what happens. Mm-hmm. Do you really want to end up there? And, and who is going to benefit when you when when the situation ends up there? None of you are. None of you who is watching this video on YouTube of uh, this guy destroys that other person. Right. You're not going to get the ten thousand dollars or the funding to be the leader of of whatever group. You're most likely going to be the loser who's like pick, who, who probably going to die and no one remembers who you are. Mm-hmm. So, 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 I mean, be careful. I mean, all of these people yeah. who, are, who are getting, t- and, 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 and that's why I think media literacy and stuff like this are as essential in America as they are in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. People need to, av- need to know that these, these videos and many of these are sensational. Yeah. They try to provoke your emotion. They try to pick a side. They try to ruin all your reasonable parts of your brain. To pick a side that you hate, not the side that you love, and not tell you think anything about values and stuff. So I think, I mean, maybe we should have an IBB branch focused on American domestic affairs. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe something to think about. But but it is it's definitely amazingly necessary, and I think more polarization is more damage, and no and no one is gonna win. Mm. Um, yeah. However, I remain optimistic because I think. There are a lot of good people in the world. I, I think honestly, like that's one of the things I would say about, about America if I could end on a good note is that if you just shut down your social media for a bit, if you shut down reading that notification on your phone or whatever news source you listen to and you walk around and maybe you talk to people not on your news feed, but rather on normal feeds. Yes, <laughs> when, right. When things, when, when things were not, uh, where, where, where what you see is not filter to what you mm-hmm. like or what the algorithm tell you and yes. really have a conversation normal conversation with a bar with someone you don't know you'll actually be surprised that a lot of people are actually kind of cool yeah just <laughs> just switch all of these stuff i mean I, I i try to follow this personally i mean obviously i use social media professionally but i try my best to i shut down a lot of this notification yeah. i have this Chrome thing that I install on my browser that stops the newsfeed of Facebook. Yes. And, and if I want to see what Abdulaziz has to say, I go to Abdulaziz's to his page. profile exactly. and, 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 and or ask him a question if I want to. And yeah. I, th- I think is I think that this definitely uh, kept me more sane during whether it's a pandemic or without it. So <laughs> right. That's probably one unsolicited advice to to yeah. to, to for you to realize that there is actually a lot to the world. There are more nice people there are a lot of people getting along mm-hmm. that you would think on when you look at that video or you look at that news feed twitter or yeah. twitter or all of these um there, there, there's just this 
it's obviously social media is part of real life, but it's not all of all of life. It's yeah. not with people in your local community. Many of them do not know what all your favorite uh, <laughs> Twitter icons are. Or, right. Uh, and, and, and if you go play, play a video game with them or, or, or drink some beer, you will actually realize that there is actually a lot of things that you can talk about other than talking about the, the meaning of the meaning of political <laughs> meaning. <laughs> um, right. Well, great. Thank you both so much. This has been great. And we touched on a lot of good stuff. So um, take care. Stay safe in your COVID. We'll be in touch. Thank you very much. Okay. Nice to you. Take care. Yeah, you all. Bye. Yellow set up. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.